Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I've got the absolute pleasure of interviewing Adrian Tudway. Now, Adrian was a former Royal Marine, a member of the Metropolitan Police, and is now running SB Worldwide Innovations, which is absolutely fantastic. And we'll come on to that at the end of the interview. But Adrian, thank you so much for uh, seeing me today from your lovely garden. <laughs> Not so lovely today, Paul. There's a lot of rain and a little bit of snow as well out there. I know it's a bit grim. So, where did it all begin? Where were you born, and you know, what's your background? Uh, I was born in 1962. So, for the mathematicians listening, I'm 60 years old, just heading up to 61. I was born in Leicester in the Midlands and um, moved with my family up to live with my grandparents up in Manchester. Um, in Chatterton. And then at the age of about seven or eight, I moved to Richmond uh, with my mum and dad, where my dad got a job um, working for the local authority here. And we moved down to a, a lovely little place called Ham, Very just nice. sitting between Richmond upon Thames and Kingston upon Thames. Lovely place. And how old were you then? I, was, I think I was about seven years old, six or seven years old. So you've lost that accent over these years, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I've picked up so many accents over the years and discarded so many. There's a little bit. Of, there's a little bit of everything in there, I think. Fantastic. So you go to a normal secondary school, or were you a grammar boy? No, no. I I went to a, a Church of England primary school, and then I went to the local comprehensive, a, a school called Greycourt which is in Ham, um, which is now one of the most sought after schools in the area. I have to say, sadly, um, when I was there, it perhaps didn't have quite the same reputation. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've gone through your, your primary school, your secondary schooling, and at 16, you've got your, I'm envious because, you know, you've got a, a hat full of O-levels, but... Um, what it's was, a very small hat. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, it's, it's bigger than the one I've got, let me tell you. Um, but, yeah, so you've, you've, you've done your O-levels. What happened at the age of 16? Well, I'd, I'd already decided um, several years before that uh, I was uh, had my sights set on uh, being a Royal Marine, and I'd been working towards that since I was about 13 and a half, 14. Um, so I finished my O-levels um, at the beginning the first week of uh, July in 1979. And on the 23rd of July, just three weeks later, I uh, packed my bags, left home and uh, took the train down to Limston in Devon um, to the Commando Training Centre um, where I did my basic training. And they've got, a, they've got their own train station there, if I remember <laughs> rightly. Is it called Limston Commando? It is, yes, yes. When I uh, when I arrived there, it was just a a length of concrete platform, and you were unceremoniously booted off the train <laughs> that uh, that ran between Exeter St David's and um, Exmouth, 
uh, into the arms of the instructors who are waiting to meet you. It was all very friendly. What was that like? Yeah, all very friendly, I'm sure. <laughs> but what was that like? Um, it, it's very, it was a very, very interesting now looking back on all of that experience, bearing in mind that um, actually getting into the Royal Marines is very difficult. Um, the process for selection is extremely arduous, uh, nothing like as arduous as the training itself. But so there's a, a great deal of build up, but there's nothing that um, can prepare you, I don't think, as a 16 year old to the shock of capture when you step out onto the platform at Limston Commando. And there's a, a couple of smiling sergeants there waiting to welcome you to your new accommodation. And as I recall, I think the uh, there were 66 of us, I think. Uh, on the train to start our uh, our course that day. Uh, 65 has got off the train. One hesitated at the door and pulled it shut again and stayed on. Um, and we spent the next uh, few minutes running up and down the railway embankment with our suitcases on our head. <laughs> Incredible. But just, uh, yeah, it's uh, all part of it. But I have to say, it's, uh, in terms of um, organisations, I think... Um, without question of all of the organizations, all of the different organizations I've come across throughout the remainder of my life, there isn't anyone anywhere in the world as forward leaning and um, proactive as the Royal Marines about the way they um, take people in, um, the sort of almost surgical precision with which they look at an individual and help shape and mold you. Um, it's very tough, it's, but mentally, um, as arduous as it is physically arduous, but the whole of the training is designed to mould and shape the young lad who steps off onto that piece of concrete into the finished article 30 weeks later when you, uh, hopefully, when you pass out. So what, what time of year was this? This is 1979, but what time of year? It was uh, 23rd of July, 1979. So again, you know, nice and sunny. Mm. Thinking, oh, this is lovely. We're by the sea in South Devon. Wonder if there'll be ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're, you're going to be running across the Breckens and places like that. Uh, and you have, um, of course, the uh, the railway station and the camp is right on the estuary of the River X, which has uh, enormous long mudflats at low tide. So you spend um, you spend plenty of time out in the mud, thigh deep trying to run and keep in step, although that's impossible. Um, and that's all part of the character building stuff. But uh, interesting, interesting anecdote. One of the uh, one of the things that stuck with me all my life and uh, allowed me to remain cheerful through adversity was when I was out in the mud on the River X and an instructor sort of saw me lift my head up uh, as we were lying in the mud. And uh, he said, son, get your face back in that mud. And I said, whilst you're down there, open your eyes. He said, because in life, if you have a look, there's always something amusing, an amusing worm or something to laugh at. And you know what? That that has stuck with me all of my life. Incredible. And so what was the attrition rate like? Because I would imagine not ev not everybody made it through the uh, basic training there. No, I think of the, of the lads that uh, I joined with, there were 11 who uh, who passed out. Wow. Um, I didn't pass out with the uh, lads that I joined up with. I ended up fracturing a shin um, about a third of the way into training. So I had six weeks out whilst that repaired um, and then joined another troop. Uh, and I passed out about 
six or eight weeks after the after the uh, the guys that I joined up with. So you you passed out early nineteen eighty then I would. Yeah, about April time nineteen eighty. Wow, it's it's incredible, isn't it? We're we're talking forty two years ago. 43 years ago. I'm only 23. What do you mean? (laughs) 43 years ago. And if you take yourself back 43 years from from then, you know, it's 1937. We hadn't even started the Second World War at that point. (laughs) It's incredible, isn't it? Do you know, that is the politest way of being called an old codger today. Well, (laughs) I'm not insinuating that at all, but, but can you imagine our grandfather's Oh, using a using a telephone, let alone talking to each other over a over a VoIP over you know the internet. The fact that they didn't have telephones in their homes at, at those in those days, and they were they didn't even know, albeit Adolf Hitler was on the ascendancy, they didn't even know there was a war on the the horizon. It's amazing, isn't it? My um, I was very very fortunate as a child that I knew my um, great grandfather, and he had been in one of the Lancashire regiments. Um, during the First World War. Brilliant. And he never talked about it, but I never, ever saw him frown. I never knew him to be cross about anything. And even in his, you know, he must have been in his late 80s. He used to take me and my little brother out on the bus um, on his own. And he just, he always, I can remember him saying to me, don't worry, there's nothing in life really worth worrying about. And I suppose after you've seen mm. the horrors uh, that he must have seen, you can understand why, can't you? Yeah, it puts it all into perspective. So you're a young Marine now. You've done your basic training. Where do you go to? What what unit do you get posted to? I, I was posted um, straight up to 4-5 Commando Group um, up in Arbroath in uh, Scotland, on the east side of Scotland. Um, and I went up there, that unit um, then and now, specialised in mountain and Arctic warfare. So uh, I went off up there and started about 18 months worth of continuation and specialist training that um, you then go on to do. Because although, of course, you come out of the training school, out of um, Commando Training Centre, and you feel that you're invincible and you truly believe that you can fly, actually, you really can't. Mm. And uh, there's a lot more work to be done um, by the other people either side of you to turn you into the finished article. So I went up to our broth um, and I then did um, mountain Arctic warfare training. I went out to North Norway uh, and did a a winter out there. Um, We did a lot of work in the highlands up on the Isle of Skye and places like that. Some of the most beautiful places on earth to visit. and it was it was really interesting. It was very hard, um, and of course, for for people who are a lot younger than you and I, the idea of being away um, and not being able to telephone <laughs> it must be must be quite um, fascinating to them. You know, there was no internet, so if we'd been out up in up on the uh, mountain tops for seven or ten days and we came back down to a base in Norway um, you might hope that on the Saturday night in the NAFI they might show a film you know and that had been one of those old spool to spool um, projectors and everybody would sit round you know you wouldn't sit on your phone and decide which film you might want to watch you know everybody watched the same thing Um, 
It's very, very interesting. It? Yeah, it is interesting. And, and I interviewed a guy called Andy Merry, who who's now a feature at Tower of London, and he went through uh, – uh, he was a Royal Marine, finished as a warrant officer. And, and we had a similar conversation because – the the phones, as much as they're a godsend, they get people in an awful lot of trouble. You you know, you only have to look at what some young soldiers and Marines have been involved in, where they've inappropriately used their phone. And police officers. I mean, if there was yeah. an extra charge of gross stupidity, that's that's the one they should be charged with, not any anything else. Because it's just <laughs> they're just you know, they read all about it and they're so stupid. But but yeah, it is fascinating. And you think Real to real or sport to sport films, and we were just getting into videos and CDs were just about to come into fruition at that point, and now they've gone. So it's it's funny how things have changed so quickly. Yes, I think I saw my first video player um, a couple of years after I left the, uh, or as I was leaving the Marines. It was about that sort of time they were just coming out, but only very rich people had them, mm. and um, you know they were there was. Something else. Yeah, there was something else, and now we've got so, it all on demand. So did you um, did you serve overseas in the Marines? I did. Um, in 1981, I went to – I was part of uh, – I, I did some additional training um, in intelligence and intelligence gathering, and I went to um, Northern Ireland, to West Belfast in 1981 for a six-month tour, which covered the um, – the IRA hunger strike. Yeah. Um, that was a very, very busy, uh, very, very busy and lively tour of West Belfast. Um, and lots and lots and lots of things happened. It was probably the most lively time for a considerable period then. Um, and it was one of those things, again, that sort of sticks with you. Um, the resilience of the Irish people. Um and this strange idea that you were going there to protect the population, but actually the population hated the sight of us. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want. <laughs> they didn't want protecting, did they? Well, I, I think they did. Part of them did, but then when yeah. they got it, they didn't. If you know what I mean. Um, and it was um, it was a very um, sobering experience, sort of working and um, walking the streets and I have a, a very vivid recollection of being on a search one morning I think it was a Saturday morning of um, a, a a building that was used as like a youth club in Ballymurphy in uh, in West Belfast just off the White Rock Road yeah and uh, the the song of the day on top of the pops was Kim Wilde Kids in America and of course, we were all we all knew this because you know I was just eighteen, and I vividly remember standing in this uh, this room, a large sort of hall, a bit like a scout hut or something like that. And um, there were three girls standing in there, and they must have been about sixteen. I was about eighteen, and they were lovely looking girls, like the Irish girls are, with yep. dark hair and dark eyes. And um, nobody turned the radio off at that point or the speakers off. And so Kim Wilde came on singing Kids in America and I could feel my foot tapping. And I'm standing there in my uniform with a, a rifle in my arms, looking at these three girls, thinking, my goodness, you know, if circumstances were different, mm. I'd probably be shimming up to one of you, trying to see if I could get you to have a dance. And these 
poor girls were all looking as anywhere but at me because, of course, to have looked at a soldier would have brought dreadful uh, retribution down yeah. on their heads. You know, we came across girls who'd had their heads shaved and been tarred and feathered because they'd been accused of looking at a soldier. Mm. Um, and it that struck me as being the most ridiculous situation to find yourself in because we're all normal people. Yeah. You know, we're all human beings at the end of the day and nothing could have been more natural than, uh, you know, having a bit of a jig to your favourite record. But across across the divide. Yeah, and there's still a divide and it's still, I mean, I, I've said this previously, this isn't about religion now. It's about organised crime groups. That's that's what it boils down to now with with yeah. the backdrop of religion. But it's, it's about cash and yeah, cash and dirty money. Yeah, yeah, black cabs and gaming machines. But and it's such a beautiful place as well. You just when you get out into the sticks, it's it's lovely. You're out there for six months, so we're yes. now, we're now getting up to the time of the Falklands. Did you get deployed with four or five to the Falklands? I did. Yes, um, we came back from uh, Northern Ireland. We did some had some Christmas leave, and uh, we did some training up in uh, uh, Otterburn, up in Northumbria, um, and then um, I went. Um, I we had a, a, an unfortunate accident on the ranges with some um, a mortar ammunition and a, and a, a mortar bomb cooked off inside a barrel. Hmm. Uh, and killed the three lads on the on the crew and severely injured another couple of lads on the nearby base plates while they were doing some live firing. Um, and so myself and a couple of others had uh, stepped in to do some extra duties once we came back to the base um, in order to allow, you know, to fill in gaps, uh, if you like. Um, so we were allowed to go away on leave and um, early, we went, got the overnight sleeper down instead of getting the train on a Friday to go right. on our Easter leave. And before we went on Easter leave, we uh, had a sort of a, a very hasty briefing that said, oh, you know, you there's some uh, potential for some trouble brewing down in the South Atlantic. And of course, the Falkland Islands, if you were a Royal Marine, you knew exactly where the Falkland Islands were because it was a base for um, Naval Party 8901, which was made of made up of Royal Marines who'd been protecting the islands for years. Um, and so I hopped off on uh, my Easter leave with my oppos and we got the uh, the night train down to London and we were out and through King's Cross and down into the underground system before the uh, military police had got there with their great big boards to say, if you're from 4-5, you need to turn around and get straight back on no the train way. back north. <laughs> no so, way. Uh, I yeah, I was uh, I travelled across uh, town and got a train down to Kent, where my uh, my first wife's um, was living with her parents, uh, and got there to find a, a smirking PC mm, <laughs> in his yeah. car on the driveway, saying, "Mate, you've been recalled." <laughs> back you <laughs> go. Turn, turn around and go back. Yes, um, and I went back up to uh, back up to our broth. Um, and we were there for a couple of days. Um, every uh, every morning we thought we'd be on the move. Um, so I didn't get back there until the Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, I think it was. Um, we worked all day Sunday loading our war stores out of the silos on our airfield um, at uh, our base called Condor. 
uh, still is rather called Condor, uh, loading them onto wagons, um, and they let us out again on the um, on the Sunday night as well, um, and said we're going to move the following morning, um, and then we travelled by coaches, by a, a sort of fairly circular route down to Portsmouth, where we were housed at HMS Nelson, um, and we weren't allowed out then. Um, uh, you know, you weren't able to make phone calls, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, whilst the uh, the government of the day sort of decided what they were going to do in response to the invasion and um, and how they were going to approach the crisis that was sort of unfolding right before their eyes. Um, and then um, after, I think, one night there, um, we then moved down and um, got onto a, a ship called the RFA Stromness, a Royal Fleet Auxiliary ship, which was um, a, a, a cargo ship um, originally. And it was just in the process of being uh, sold to the New Zealand Navy. But I I think the uh, the British government pinched the ignition keys back at the last <laughs> minute, sent a load of dockies on board, and these guys worked round the clock, cut all of the... Um, hold out and installed tiers and tiers and tiers of bunks um three and four where there was sufficient headroom high so that uh, it could accommodate um troops and uh, we all loaded up onto the stromness and went down below and uh, sailed out on the early tide i think it was the early tide was it the evening tide do you know with the passenger time i can't remember other than it was dark and uh, we steamed off out into the channel and headed down into the Bay of Biscay, where we then waited whilst the rest of the task force sort of caught us up because um, obviously the situation was unfolding minute by minute at that stage, you know, while decisions were being made. And um, another of our companies from 4-5 had been out in Brunei doing some jungle training. So um, they were flown back very quickly and flown out to uh, to meet the ships um, and then we assembled up as part of the task force we all raced off down to ascension island just over the equator um, we had uh, a, a sort of an afternoon off at ascension island which was hilarious i don't know what the um the female staff at the american naval base uh, or the american air force base rather on the island thought when about three or four hundred of us came ashore in landing craft ostensibly to go and fill sandbags but in effect to strip off starkers and splash about in the sea and go skinny <laughs> dipping <laughs> hilarious it was it was very very funny um and at that point or up to that point in my mind it was all a bit of an adventure and um you know well we'll see what will happen and of course we were because of um technology and its um state of development at that stage we didn't have any television no we didn't see any newspapers we only got told what we were told in briefings but then um after a couple of days in and around ascension island we were all cross-decked to um ships um and configured for a, an assault landing and it was then that it started to get a little bit more real and a bit more serious mm. um i was going to yeah. ask you i mean the I think, and I've never been in that situation other than when I've been deployed on different things, but the smells and the sounds and, you know, being below decks with 
X amount of people must have been a completely different <laughs> experience. Well, I I have very little sense of smell these days, and I, <laughs> I think I think I attribute that survival instinct to um, the uh, the time on the Stromness because there were about three hundred and fifty of us, I think, in that main hold. There was one entrance way in and out, no air conditioning, hmm. and you can imagine, you know, if. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, that was... somebody in one corner is slightly indiscreet. Everybody gets a bit of it shortly. <laughs> <laughs> when you, what was the atmosphere actually like as you got closer to? Because I, I, I can only assume that the weather was changing as well as you move further down. Yes. But what was the atmosphere like on on board? Um. Well, it was it was very businesslike. I mean, we all knew each other extremely well. We lived cheek by jowl um, because we didn't have the distractions of phones and the internet. Our um, everything was all of our time was spent together. So you know, your buddy, your oppo, um, is your eyes and ears behind you, mm. and your job as uh, as a young marine, your job is to watch your oppo's back, and you do that ruthlessly because you know without even having to think about it, that he's watching your back. Yeah. So yeah. you don't need to watch your own because your mate's there. And so we um, we we did a lot of um, running up and down the tank decks on the um, on the landing ships. I went to Sir Tristram, which was um, a flat bottom designed as, as a, uh, a river vessel. Um, so you can imagine what that's like going through the South Atlantic in uh, in April. It was uh, horrendous. Certainly quite lumpy. Um, they strapped um, these mexa floats, um, as they are called. They're like a floating um, dock. They strapped those either side of the ship, ostensibly to transport them south. But actually, we thought they'd put them either side just to stop us from capsizing because oh, <laughs> the weather the weather was horrific. Um, but by that stage, we'd all found our sea legs, even me, a notoriously bad sailor. Um, and we continued to steam south. And it was only as we got close to the exclusion zone and then we started to um, uh, we started the the ships company were practicing the uh, their uh, guns and all that sort of business. Um, the big cannons on the front, the Bofors cannons. Then we really thought okay so this is now for real mm. um and i can vividly remember for years afterwards um i didn't really enjoy getting in lifts i never really knew why but actually i think it's because um our accommodation was um was down two companionways and um at about the waterline the actual accommodation where we slept was down vertical ladders from those companionways so you're below the waterline and um, whenever we went to action stations, um, the duty um, sailors had run along and dropped the hatches so that we were stuck inside our mess decks so that we couldn't get in the way of them as they're trying to fight the ship. Mm. Um, I've, just gone, I've just gone cold there, to be honest with you, because I can only imagine what that must have been like, knowing Well, that, it's, yeah. Oh. It's uh, sitting there in the dark with just red light on, um so that your your night vision isn't um isn't damaged um listening to the screaming over the tannoy for more ammunition for the bofors guns and hmm. um different um the rangefinders shouting out different um 
quadrants that various waves of uh, aircraft are coming in at you know and we obviously the um, the Sheffield HMS Sheffield was sunk um and other other ships as well i mean at that early stage the hms hms sheffield i think was the biggest um biggest single event and once that had happened then you know everything hardened up mm, um because you know right this is it nobody's going to put up with that now um we're definitely going to be going ashore and definitely getting on with our job mm. and for us for you know i feel very fortunate that um uh, as a 19-year-old, I had had the benefit of all of that expertise that the Royal Marines throw at you during your commando training. So I knew what I was doing. Uh, physically, I was well prepared. Mentally, as a 19-year-old, I was really well prepared. And um, we also had the added bonus that because we were um, a specialist mountain Arctic warfare unit, we also had some decent kit. Our boots were good. Um, we um, we had issued rucksacks, the best that the MOD apparently could provide for us at the time. But we dumped all of those and bought our own. We were allowed to use those. Um, they were they authorized us to use uh, a Berghaus product. Um, so when we finally we had our final briefings and then um, got ready to actually go over the scramble nets and into the landing craft themselves, you know, we were ready to go. And by the time you you land on the Falklands, had the Sir Galahad been struck? No, no, no. That was afterwards. Galahad was our um, one of our sister ships. Right. So there was the Lancelot, the Percival, the Tristram, and the Galahad. Mm. Um, I was on the Tristram. Um, so when we came into, um, we came up and into Falkland Sound, the passage of water between the two islands, and then Bunga left. Um, that's probably not the most naval term for it, <laughs> but we went <laughs> um, in towards San Carlos Water and um, Ajax Bay. Um, that was where we then went over the side of the ship in the early hours of the morning, down the scrambling nets and into the um, into the landing craft, which were got heaving up and down in the sea. So you imagine you're on a bigger ship in the dark with all of your equipment. And you climb over the over the rail of the ship in a on a rope net, and the target you're aiming at is coming up and down about eight feet every few seconds because it's on the surge of the tide and the waves. Um, so you've got to time yourself as you're getting into it, uh, as you're getting into the boat so you don't fall or you're not crushed between the landing craft and the side of the ship because that wouldn't end well either. No. Um, but, of course, again, I'm very fortunate because we'd had the benefit of being trained for amphibious operations as part of our commando training. You know, yeah, and, of course. And, so we were into the landing craft and then away. And those landing craft, I mean, I don't know how old they were at that time, but they've probably been around for a few years before they'd actually been used. <laughs> <laughs> yes, mine didn't quite say welcome to the Boer War Tommy on it, but I think it probably could have done. Um, they were unchanged since the Second World War, yeah. effectively. Um, and in fact, I think some of them were of that sort of vintage. I'm sure you're probably um, right, yeah. Yeah. It's incredible, yeah. and no disrespect, but you were a kid. I mean, at 19 years old, what you're going through, thank God, you know, very few people will ever go through that again. Um, but what you're going through, and like I say, no disrespect, but you're a kid. You've, but you've, you've talked about toughen up 
and and just get on with stuff. I mean, that's it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> so, what was it like? You're sailing a, a, across from the Satristam, and you're in your landing craft, and you're heading towards the shores of the Falklands. Nobody knew what the Argentinians had done, whether they'd laid mines or, you know, there was no sort of idea around that. And of course, we had, a, as you say, we had a detachment of Marines on the island. What was, what was the feeling like? What were the sights and the sounds? Well, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of what had happened, certainly for, for the lads on 8901 who were, um, who resisted the inv- invasion at the very start and put up the most courageous fight um, before the governor, Rex Hunt, told them, ordered them to put their weapons down and surrender to prevent a bloodbath. I mean, we knew nothing about what had happened to them at that stage because, of course, we've had no newspapers and no. and no news. But all we were aware of was the briefings we'd had. Um, we knew what our target was. Um, I went in a uh, – me and my mates, we went to Red Beach um, which was Ajax Bay and the what was a mutton canning factory that had been long abandoned. Um, and that was going to be the central beachhead for all the stores and also the field hospital, um, the red and green life machine as it became right. uh, known. So we were in the second assault wave onto Red Beach 1 um, just after dawn that first morning. Incredible. And just before the first um, waves of Argentine aircraft came in to, uh, to sort of shoot us and bombers. Mm. Um, so we went ashore. Um, I had my um, introductory course into penguin husbandry at that point. <laughs> when I, we, we ran up the beach and straight through a penguin colony, and they do look, when you look at them on Happy Feet or any of those <laughs> other cartoons, they look lovely little creatures. Yeah. My God, I don't think I've ever met a stinkier animal <laughs> anywhere on the planet. They whiff. Oh, um, and they've got very sharp beaks as well. Um, and I'm sure they weren't delighted that we went racing through their uh, their nesting site. Um, I, uh, honestly, I'm, I'm visualising this now as I'm sitting here, and I'm sure that the people listening to this will be, will be the same. There's that classic... Um, image of a Royal Marine with the Union flag on their backpack and they're yomping through. What, what, yes. was, what was that like? I mean, I, I'm, I know I'm trying to. I'm like a, I'm like a kid here. This is this is boys' own stuff that I'm listening to. But, but what what was that like? I mean, you had to walk miles. There was it, it was an incredible feat of human oh, endurance. Well, uh, yes, it was. And I suppose looking back now, yes, you realise the enormity of it. Um, But uh, uh, as I say, I come back to the point that, um, you know, the Royal Marines haven't been around since 1664 for no good reason. Indeed. Um, And the expertise and care with which you are trained and prepared and conditioned for this sort of task um, is, is... uh, you know, it's beyond compare. So we we landed and, and we were ready and we, we did the jobs that we were asked to do. We dug in. Um, we lived in, uh, I lived in a slit trench um, just um, above the beach, just in the gorse line um, for about seven or eight nights, me and my two mates, one of whom 
um, I still see at least I speak to him at least two or three times a week, and he's uh, he's like uh, a brother. My missus cooks a meal for him, and he's Brilliant. over here and stays. You know, and we sit and watch some old nonsense on the telly. You know, but all these years on, yeah, um, yeah, because absolutely. those sort of friendships, um, those sort of friendships, never go past a sell by date. No. Um, so we did. Um, the the first really um, massive incident, I suppose, were apart from the air attacks, which were relentless in those first few days. Um, the Argentine Air Force um, were nothing if not brave. They flew several sorties a day into um, what became called Bomb Alley, into San Carlos Water, and into Ajax Bay. Um, trying to hit the ships with their uh, with their bombs, and uh, once the um, once our colleagues from the army had got their rapier missiles set up, the attrition rate was about eighty or ninety percent. So these young Argentine pilots were flying their aircraft in, maybe in a, a wing of eight aircraft, in the knowledge that if they were lucky, two might get out, but more likely one, if any at all, on some days. Wow. You know, and yet they still kept coming. Um, quite mm. incredible, but um, we did a, a resupply patrol to an OP that was looking down towards uh, Goose Green or the uh, the approaches towards a route to Goose Green on the night that HMS Antelope um, exploded. And there's a very famous, iconic now, if you like, image of a ship at night silhouetted um, with this massive blast and this white corona around the ship of the explosion. Well, that that was HMS Antelope, which had been hit earlier and um, a bomb that they'd been working on to try and defuse went off. Um, And we just got to the point where we would have rolled over the skyline to go down the other side of the mountain and pass on the um, food and um, water and any ammunition that was required to the people doing the, you know, the lads doing the OP on the other side when that explosion happened. So we had no option but to lie in the gorse just below the ridgeline and watch all this horror unfolding mm. in the night, Benoas, um, and watch HMS Antelope burning in the night. And by the time we, when the, the fires sort of died down insufficiently and we could get on with what we were supposed to do. We were away for a couple of hours. And by the time we got back down to our trench in the morning, as dawn was breaking, all that was left of HMS Antelope was her bows poking up out of the water and then her stern poking up where she'd blown up and folded into a V shape and sunk. Um, Quite remarkable. And it was literally just a couple of hundred metres in front of our trench. Well, well the, the first interview I did when I first started doing these podcasts was with a, a guy called Steve Hutley, who was one of the youngest uh, merchant sailors to go down there. And he has he described it in almost exactly the same way. He said, yeah, it's and, quite and, incredible. And he said it was incredible. And it was the, the turning point of it, it, things got real. I mean, things were real anyway, but things got really real. And he, I can't remember what vessel he was on, but it was effectively the... Uh, the munitions dump, if you like, it was a floating bomb because that's where everyone got their their supplies from. And then all of a sudden, he realised that they were they were a sitting duck. You know, they were a, a target. 
Mm. It's it is it's amazing, and and it, of course, when you see those sort of things for yourself, it's one thing being uh, briefed on a ship that mm. you know the Sheffield's been lost, and yeah. the um, you know that feeling that stiffening of resolve is one thing, but when you are actually watching it happen in front of you, and you're thinking, you know, those there's sailors on that ship. Oh yeah, and of course, you know, you had the Coventry, you had the Sagala Head. Um, the Coventry, I worked with a guy who, who was on the Coventry, and Miranda Hart's father was the captain of the Coventry. He was, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's written a very good book as well. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And it, but it's, it's, this is living history, and, and I'm really grateful for your candour. When you uh, you progress forward from, on, from your line, what, yeah. what was that like as you started pressing forward? Oh, that, that we, uh, we got back into landing craft at Red Beach, and um, we went across, right across um, the water and landed on the other side at San Carlos, which I think was, it was either blue or green. And I can't remember now. I think it was blue, uh, blue beach. And that was our forming up point for the, uh, what has become known as the Great Yomp. And uh, we headed off and took the northerly route. Um, we knew that we were pushing back small patrols that, um the Argentines had had out at the little settlements and we were going to clear two particular settlements. We went first to a place called Douglas House, um, which was a, a farm outpost with several buildings and a couple of families living there. Uh, and that was possibly the foulest night of my life oh, really? on the way there, it, where there was sleet and driving rain all night, sub-zero temperatures, and we must have been moving for about 17 hours. We were carrying in excess of 120 pounds on our backs, um, knowing that at any moment you might have to dump your backpack and get into a firefight. Um, it was it was pretty cold, wet, and miserable. But we all kept going. You know, and you you do these things, people sort of, again, um, you often find with um, accounts of, uh, of wars and conflicts and things like that. You know, people saying, well, you know, this is for queen and country. It's not. It's for your mate. Mm. You do it because your mate is along, you know, alongside you. Um, and you know that he is doing it because you're with him. And yeah. that's what it's all about. You do it for each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was I was talking to a guy the other day who's a, a beef another beef eater who was out there with the first battalion of the Welsh Guards, and he said, "You know what? I'd do it again." Yes, yes. And that that's quite I don't know sobering. I don't know, but yeah, it's it's funny it's... how how people's psyche works. But yeah, he said I'd do it again. He said every Christmas day I go out and cry. He said, but. <laughs> You know, because they lost a lot, lot of people as well. They did, yes. And he said, you yes. know, but, but I'd do it again. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it? And it's funny how attitudes change and how um, the prevailing sort of thoughts of a nation change. Um, the only a week or so ago, Argentina declared that uh, you know they've got some domestic problems at home, haven't they, with their yeah. economy and with rampant inflation. So, as these sort of um, 
cowboy governments tend to. They wave a bit of a flag and try and rally their people by making some huge statement about the Falklands, which <laughs> yeah. is absolutely ingrained in their national yeah. psyche. And uh, I was talking to my son about it. Um, I'm not a user of Twitter or anything like that. That's somewhat beyond me, if I'm honest. <laughs> but he was saying there were lots and lots of comments from people in the UK on Twitter saying, well, why don't we just let them have it? You know, and you think, hang on a minute. Have you people never been educated? Mm. Why would, you know, why there would are we? people who live on those islands, several thousand of them, who are British. They are British, absolutely. They're as, they're yeah. as British as you or I, and they deserve the protection of the state. Yeah. And, you know, they had a referendum only a couple of years back, and 98% yep. voted to remain British. And they're you proud, know, well, that's pretty proudly. clear, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They're proudly British. I mean, that is of that there is no doubt. When you when you've made your way across and, and that great yarn, as I say, it's iconic watching and there's a statue, I understand now, at the uh, museum of the, the person with the backpack with the I think it's a radio aerial and a, it's a radio aerial, yeah. It was a radio operator with four two, yes, I believe. Mm. I mean, that's, yeah. that, as I say, that's, <laughs> that's iconic. It's bonkers as well. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers to, to yomp all that way. Yeah, we, we went to um, after um, we did Douglas House and then we went to Teal Inlet and um, we spent a night there. And then we made on to our final point, which was at a place called Bluff Cove Peak yeah. um, on the slopes of Mount Kent, which was our harbouring area then while we um, prepared for the night attacks on the um, peaks that surround Port Stanley. Um, and it was there we saw the aircraft that had attacked the Galahad and the Tristram um, shrieking in and out, you know, and we realised something awful had gone on mm. down on the water. Uh, and uh, my heart goes out to those poor lads on those boats because they were packed with ammunition. Yeah. Um, and there's been lots and lots of books written about the rights and wrongs of it. Um, but uh, the the fact remains that some uh, some of those lads on those boats met a, a, an unspeakably awful end. Yeah. Um, and some of them survived, but survived with the most incredibly um, challenging personal circumstances afterwards. And the name Simon Weston, obviously, is the first one that springs yeah. to mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so it is. It's, it's just, I don't know. It, it leaves me cold. It, it's made me quite emotional, actually. But God knows how you feel at every anniversary. And, you know, it's it's just a, I don't know. <laughs> well, I... Uh, we uh, we tend to get together and have a good drink. We have um, we have regular reunions. Um, we had our fortieth reunion up at Condor, up at the base last right. uh, June, which was incredible. Um, and my missus came with us, and she said it was like watching um, it was like watching one of these uh, apocalypse sort of movies. Yeah. She said you've got three hundred and fifty blokes. Uh, and bearing in mind that I was amongst the youngest, I certainly wasn't the youngest, and and I'm was just coming up to sixty at that point. Yeah. So you've got about three hundred odd of these blokes who all think they're nineteen and a cross between Bear Grylls and Spider Man, <laughs> all with ninety nine pints of lager and just one packet of crisps on board, <laughs> all wobbling around the uh, the base. You know. How lovely. Uh, she said it was quite hilarious, but 
it's uh, it is a family. The Royal Marines is a family, and we yeah. look after our own. We look after each other. We'll always help somebody else, but we always, always, always look after each other. And so the way we tend to uh, mark these events is we all get together. Um, I don't see any, uh, you know, I don't see any crying or sadness. You know, we have uh, a tremendous respect for those of our those of our comrades who we didn't bring back with us you know one of them one of the lads who didn't come back actually shared my room when I was at um at Limston in my training oh, a, a young man called Keith Phillips who I will never forget hmm. um and he's buried on the islands oh, um, wow. have you been you know, back I have I've been very very fortunate I've been back um I, I've been back a couple of times um I managed to win a lottery um for a, a seat um on a pilgrimage for 20 years um which is a, a funny story in itself because like the silly old bugger that i am i misread an email um i got the first email which gave me the date of the flight and then uh, this was about 18 months out and then uh, later on another email came which i completely ignored which said <laughs> due to various reasons the flight's come forward by 24 hours oh crikey <laughs> so i turned up at um at gatwick at their special events terminal um and i thought hang on it's a bit quiet around here and i, <laughs> I thought Oh, uh, no. all, all those bug all those buggers are hiding somewhere as soon as i walk around the corner they're all going to jump out and go yeah I walked round to the uh, desk and there was just one young lady sitting there shuffling some papers and I said, I've come for the flight to the Falklands. And the poor girl was got was close to tears. She said, oh, that flight went 24 hours ago. Oh, You're late. Crikey. And I thought, oh, right, okay, well, that's that then. I'd better go back to work. But uh, a friend had driven me down there and she said, no, no, we're not having this. Hang on a minute. And she made a few phone calls and um, managed to get through to somebody at Bryson Horton who said, yeah, we've got a military flight leaving tonight. If you can get him over here, um, we'll squeeze him onto the military flight tonight and he'll be about six or eight hours behind the uh, the group that have already left. So we raced from Gatwick right across to uh, Bryson Horton and um, the rest is history. Fantastic. I arrived there. It, the whole thing had been uh, organised by um, Commander Rick Jolly, who was the surgeon, incredible surgeon, who um, ran the field hospital at Ajax Bay. And he wrote a book called The Red and Green Life Machine, which is um, testament to the Greenberries and the Redberries mm. of the Parachute Regiment. Um, and and he organised this. So as soon as I arrived at, uh, at Stanley Airfield, he was there. And he said, oh, I thought I'd better come across and see you because forever now you are going to be known as One Way Tudway because you're only <laughs> traveling with us on the way back. Um, what a wonderful man. Oh, and the only the only person that I'm aware of um, who has ever been decorated for gallantry by both sides in a conflict because he was decorated by um, the Queen, Her Majesty the Queen, for his bravery and his skill in saving all of those lives. Mm -hmm. And then he went to Argentina at their invitation and the Argentine government decorated him as well because Amazing. he said, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, when you uh, come through the door, we'll, uh, we'll put you right. Amazing. And he did. They didn't lose a single person Absolutely at, uh, at the field hospital, I don't think. So, so your 
you've you've seen the you've seen the screaming aircraft and you know that something bad's gone on the water and you've got then is that before you've yomped no 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 we were we were in our harboring area um up at uh up on the slopes of Mount Kent, just on the reverse side of Mount Kent. And what the the idea was that we were there in order to um, prepare ourselves, shake down into our uh, small teams then to go and uh, attack the uh, the ring of mountains that surrounds Port right. Stanley itself. But for a variety of reasons, um, in, including the loss of the Atlantic conveyor, yeah. Um, on which all our medium lift or most of our medium lift helicopters had gone and the heavy lift, the Chinook helicopters that uh, had been sunk. Um, and also because of uh, what happened at Ajax Bay, at, sorry, Ajax Bay at uh, Bluff Cove with the Galahad and the Tristram and the strain that put on the resources available. We actually stayed at Bluff Cove Peak for several days uh, and mounted um patrols at night just to harass the um the enemy positions but it was a really it was time very very well spent and um there was a really good reconnaissance done of um the three peaks mount longdon two sisters which was the uh, night battle i was involved in and mount harriet to the south um and then on the night of the 11th and 12th of june 1982 um we uh, we assaulted the those that ring of mountains, and that in itself was um, again was interesting now to sort of reflect back on because in order to get from where we were in our harbour area and to be in proper uh, striking distance, realistic striking distance to get up the mountains, we had to move into the no man's land. So we moved overnight the night before and got to our laying up area and we lay in the uh, in the gorse um, so that we were minimizing our movement because of course the enemy up on the mountains were looking for us they knew we were out there somewhere but they didn't know where um, and expecting us so we sort of lay there for an entire day really um, just cracking jokes with one another you know check your kit again make sure your ammunition's right and you know everybody wants to be near a scouser uh, for any Americans listening, a scouser is somebody who comes from Liverpool, and they are the funniest people <laughs> on the planet. Um, if you if you speak to a scouser, they've always got a joke. So, um, yeah, we spent the entire day there, lying up, waiting and waiting. And then, as darkness fell, we then sort of moved forward um, and crossed our start line to do the assault up the mountains. And, um, and I suppose that you know. Th- we, we, you, are an elite fighting force. Were the Argentinians to that level? I mean, did they have they got an equivalent of the Royal Marines? Um, they said they had their own special forces, yes. Um, 601, I think they were called 601, 602 and 603 um, were their unit designations. Um, and they were interspersed all around the place. But... By and large, the vast majority of the Argentines were your conscripts, um, and some of them um, were were very, very young indeed. Mm. Um, I spoke to um, a, a landing craft coxswain later on, much, much later on, who'd taken an entire um, high school class of boys off a beach 
when they'd been taken prisoner. These were all 15 or 16 year old boys. And the teacher had been given stripes and told that he was now a sergeant, oh. you know, and some of these, some of these kids, the, the, the environment is incredibly harsh. If you imagine going to the northernmost point in Scotland in the grip of winter and then living out um, without cover for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, you know, it's it's a battle to keep yourself healthy. It's a battle to keep your feet healthy um, and to avoid uh, frostbite or frostnip or exposure and all of those other ailments, trench foot, all those things that um, that can befall you. And of course, we were um, well trained and well motivated. And we were also looking after one another because you always look after your oppo. Um, so we were doing that and felt good. But for those youngsters who had virtually well, little or no military training at all, that must have been appalling. Well, it must be. Not. It must have been absolutely appalling. You know, you can't. You, oh, I can't imagine. So, what? At what point do you? How long were you there before? the island you've 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 gone through your battles and which were probably quite horrendous in themselves but they how certainly long, were <laughs> how, how long before liberation took place you know how how long before you got to the governor's house well it all it all rolled on almost sort of uh, sequentially after that uh, we started our fight we were due to cross our start line, I think, an hour or two hours after the Paras opened their start line on Mount Longdon. But for a variety of reasons, there were some delays um, all the way down the line. But we eventually got told we were green to go. And we did um, what the, what Royal Marines are famous for. We did it as a silent night attack up a mountain. Uh, and we got to within about 50 yards of the enemy before they even knew we were there. Um, and, and then very helpfully, some young Argentinian thought he'd, obviously thought he'd heard something. He came out with a handheld flare and stood next to one of their heavy machine guns and set this flare off. So he illuminated not only himself, but also mm. one of their heavy machine guns. I don't know whether they ever found a scrap of him left because no. he must have been taken to pieces from all sides. Oh, um, but we fought our way up and over that um up and over that mountain and it, once you get in close it is bitter dirty gutter fighting yeah um you don't have time for trying to aim a rifle um you know it's uh, shovels grenades um it and bayonets we fix bayonets to go up it's it really is the most brutal thing you can imagine um and it is kill or be killed um and afterwards you know you look back and think wow was that even real you know yeah. did that really happen um does the, that impact on you now i mean in in later life has that impacted on you um i yes i think it has um oh like, yes it, it most certainly did at, at one point Sorry, Adrian. Um, no, no, it's no problem at all. Um, and uh, I think you would be less than human if it hadn't. Yeah. Um, I uh, I don't think any of us imagined that we were or acknowledged that um, we had any um, lingering 
uh, effect from what we'd done um, afterwards. But, you know, it was a little bit like one flew over the cuckoo's nest at night in the uh, in the accommodation on the base because lots of people started sleepwalking who hadn't sleepwalked before and all that sort mm. of thing, you know, and people had to have um, coffin dreams where you'd suddenly wake up feeling suffocated and shouting in the middle of the night, you know, and those were the lower end of it, you know, and there were some people who had dreadfully badly affected and it affects their entire life going forwards and it's a bit of a lottery really as to whether you're one of those people who are affected or one of those people who aren't but um i had my challenge i suppose oh probably a decade later and i hadn't really acknowledged at all that um i carried any baggage except that i occasionally had um some bad dreams at night uh, and I would very occasionally sleepwalk and my first wife thought I was bonkers in the middle of the night when she caught me in the back garden sleepwalking and trying to dig myself into a, a border um, covered in mud at three o'clock in the morning um, but I dealt with a or as the first detective um, the only detective actually uh at night um, to a murder-suicide in Battersea. And a, a young woman had been shot in the face with a sawn-off shotgun. And then the uh, uh, murderer turned the weapon on himself. And it yeah. was a domestic situation. Dreadful. But the young lady had the most horrific, catastrophic head injuries. Um, and that triggered something for me, it, the, the catastrophic head injury. Um, and after that, I went and had a little bit. The Met were absolutely brilliant. Um, and I went and had a little bit of talking therapy. Only, I think, about five or six sessions that just help put everything into context. Um, and I've never looked back. Oh, that's, that's, that's brilliant. Sort of, yeah. I mean, it's as I say, I think that um, it's no reflection upon anybody. I think some of one of the stigmas that comes with um any form of psychological impact is that people f feel well there must be something wrong with me or i'm i'm a lesser person because i've had this uh consequence for myself where some of my mates maybe haven't mm. you know so i must be weak absolutely that's absolutely not the case and in fact it's that sort of um internal narrative that does further damage for people um actually you know it it is a perfectly natural human response to absolutely unnatural circumstances. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and so, the only lingering, um, the only lingering effect that I have now, at the grand old age of sixty, is my wife bans me from watching any type of war films uh, before bed. Well, I hope you don't have nightmares tonight because I don't want to be the cause of any uh, <laughs> any domestics. <laughs> so so you, you've, you've gone through this horrendous battle and do you regroup before you go to the governor's house? Or Yes, yeah. I mean, we, we fought through the night and as first light came, um, HMS Glamorgan had um, uh, 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 talk about an act of selfless self-sacrifice um we knew that we had um our own artillery behind us who were able to fire on our position and as it became bogged down 
um, the Argentinians had bigger artillery pieces than uh, than the than we had, and of course they'd had months to dig in and fortify themselves, and they knew exactly where their positions were. So as we were overrunning their positions, they were then able to fire fire missions actually onto their own trenches. Right. Um, so we lay under um, this uh, barrage from these enormous. Um, enormous artillery shells, you know, a couple of minute coming in at one point, pounding the top of the mountain, trying to shake us off. Uh, and we're all sort of lying there trying to find whatever cover you can. Um, caught in the open on a saddle between the two peaks. Um, and, you know, it was horrific. But HMS Glamorgan, who'd been providing us with absolutely vital naval gunfire support from um, just out in the bay, they knew that there was a land-based exit system that couldn't operate at night. So they were safe to operate um, whilst there was darkness. Right. But they needed to get off that gun line and be out of the way, out of harm's way before um, dawn broke. But um, the skipper of Glamorgan uh, and the crew stayed longer than they should have to make sure that we were okay and to fire us in so that we could finally get into proper cover and away. And as a result, they uh, took an exocet through the back of the ship and um, they lost a number of men dead and um, seriously injured, you know, and it just, I suppose it shows the, the selflessness and the sacrifice that professionals will make for another in circumstances like that. Yeah, it is. quite incredible. Oh, quite yeah. incredible. So, did you? You had two nine commando. Uh, we had our own. Yes, yeah, <laughs> our own artillery, and they were. Um, we were. We were very fortunate um, within the structure of the Royal Marines at that time because uh, we were a commando group as right. opposed to just a commando unit. Right. So, uh, being a commando group, we had our own flight of um, helicopters, little gazelles. We had our own um, battery. Um, and we had our own um, team of commando engineers as well. So we were a sort of full package, if Self, you like. Self-sufficient. Yeah, yes. I, I had a guy around here earlier on, actually. He was out there with 2-9. Um, yeah, he's one of my best mates. And it's, it's interesting. Well, he is. And if it, you ever get stuck... Yeah, get stuck, and he's fifty yards behind you. Get him to throw stones at whatever it is in front of you because they're really accurate. <laughs> <laughs> if only he could hit, hit a golf ball with such accuracy. Actually, I'm glad. I'm glad that he doesn't. To be fair, so so you, you've moved on. Uh, how long were you in battle before you before liberation actually took place, though? Well, we um, we spent the rest of that. Uh, the following day on top of the feature that we were on top of while units pushed through us and around us and um, the Scots Guards went to Wireless Ridge and uh, tumbled down yep um, which has all been very well documented and we were uh, going to push through then and to Sapper Hill but we were told to hold um, which is what we did and then as we slowly started to uh, advance the first order came to say, you know, there's there's white flags flying over Port Stanley, which came up and down the line. And of course, again, because 
communications were very rudimentary in those days. We a lot of it you relied on passing messages backwards and forwards. You yeah. know? So at one particularly hilarious point earlier in the um, earlier in the conflict, long before that, but I think it was on one of one of the stages of that young, long yomp. A warning from the front of air raid warning red came down. By the time it got to the back, it was Galti areas dead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we had the first message come down the line to say that there appears to be white flags flying over Stanley. So we started to um, punch up and move up um, and close the ring round into into the town itself. And we could see streams of Argentinians running down from the mountains, having discarded their weapons and equipment. And they were just running like, like streams of ants running towards the town. And um, Port Stanley, uh, the Falkland Islands as a whole are the most idyllic place on earth. They really are beautiful. Um, And Port Stanley looked like a little picture on a chocolate box you yeah. might get at Christmas or a tin of biscuits, you know, um, looked beautiful in the morning, early morning light. And there were all these people streaming down in there. Um, and then another um, message came down the line to say, make your weapons safe. You know, um, no, the rules of engagement have changed now. You're not to fire unless you're fired on. Um, and then, um that really was the mark that it was over. And we were directed. Um, obviously, there was the desire in everybody to make a great big rush for Port Stanley um, because apparently the barmaid in the Globe Tavern was just beautiful. But <laughs> I'm not sure about that. We were told to, we were directed up onto Sapper Hill and told to go firm up there and wait, which is, uh, so that's exactly what we did. We made our way up to Sapper Hill and um, we set ourselves up little bibbies up on the top there. Um, we were very fortunate as well, having been living on dried Arctic rations for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And and sometimes they, they didn't come mm-hmm. as well. So you'd have days where you were quite hungry. We found some, um, uh, some industrial size tins of corned beef and um, plum peel tomatoes. <laughs> that were obviously part of the catering supplies for the Argentinians. We found them in a, this thing called a, like a shake on uh, the steel container, sea container that goes on the back of an articulated lorry. So we, uh, we managed to uh, find our way into this shake on and nicked as much of this as we could. <laughs> and we had, uh, it was, it was years afterwards before I could face a meal of corned beef. again. <laughs> All we did was eat and eat and eat and eat and eat until we were sick and then eat some more. Um, and we had this for days on end. And then after a couple of nights up on um, up on Sapper Hill, we were given instructions then to move down and into town. And we moved into what was the old town hall on the seafront, just down from the cathedral and the Whalebone Arch. Um, and the whole place was completely um, devastated. There was oh. weapons and equipment everywhere. Um, the logistics operation to to organise that clear up, making safe of all of that ammunition, is nothing short of uh, miraculous. Um, I think they've quite just, incredible. They've just cleared the last mine. I think in the in the past month or so, I think I've read somewhere that it just cleared the last actual yes. last mine. 
Yeah, I blew so out of the beaches out towards Volunteer Point, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, quite, quite amazing. Um, 40 years to clear up the mess that it takes a couple of days for mm. a dictator to make of somebody else's country. Yeah, absolutely. And what was that like for you? You know, you, you've gone through every emotion, losing friends, you, you know, you've seen warships um, attacked and they've sunk. What, what was that like when, when those white flags went up How, as a 19-year-old? Um, you know, I don't I'm, – I'm not sure – there was any it was just part of what was happening really i mean it's it seems strange to um to to say it that way but it was what i was paid to do yeah, it no. was what i'd been trained to do it's like being a carpenter and never being shown a piece of wood yeah. and then all of a sudden somebody sticks a bit of wood in front of you and says go on son bang a nail into it and that's what we did um there were some um there were some sort of really real comedy moments when the um when the actual firefight started on um overnight on the overnight battle on two sisters i distinctly remember at one point thinking i'm not religious i'm not religious oh my goodness where is he <laughs> yeah. what are you doing beam me up scotty uh, and then another point, I was thinking, look, this is just getting really seriously out of hand here. Yeah, someone's <laughs> get, someone's going to get very badly hurt in a moment. You know, isn't isn't it, where's the sergeant major? Isn't he going to come around and stop all this nonsense? Uh, uh, um, who was your sergeant it, major then? Uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> do you remember who yeah. your sergeant major was? Yes, yeah, a, a wonderful man called Pat Chapman, MBE, uh, and Pat is still alive. And if you're listening, Pat, hello, sir. You'll get He's a, always going to be called sir. <laughs> What what was it? How long were you there before you got repatriated back to the UK? Only a matter of a couple of days. Um, wow. We were amongst the first to um, get going. Um, so we we were up on Sapper Hill for a couple of nights. We were down in the town for a, a three or four nights, and then they rigged up um, these light enormous waist deep paddling pools inside the tank deck of one of the um fleet auxiliary landing ships um and we went in one end with all our filthy clothing and all the rest of it um hadn't changed anything apart from a pair of socks for about eight weeks we went in at one end and the water was all this sort of gray color and we were all in there messing about because it was nice and warm. They they diverted the engine's exhaust pipes uh, through the pools to keep them warm. So we we're all sort of ducking each other, you know, and spitting water at each other. I'm wondering, what's that crust floating on the top? And so that was our first sort of bath or wash or shower, you know, above and beyond what you could do under limited circumstances to keep yourself healthy mm. um, whilst it was all going on. And uh, I distinctly remember then going up to the ship's rail and giving a ceremonial burial to my uh, pants that I'd be wearing because <laughs> I don't think I don't think Mrs. Purcell's best could have done justice to uh, the uh, the state they were in. And um, we then were moved out to the Canberra. Oh, okay. Um, yep. And pretty pretty much the whole of the Royal Marines uh, were embarked back to the UK on the Canberra. And I have to say, in terms of, you know, you say in terms of um, conditions like post-traumatic stress um, that 
some people were unfortunate enough to develop. Um, I think for us who came home on the Canberra, we had effectively three weeks with our mates to uh, decompress. Yes. Um, and decompression, for those who aren't familiar with it, is mainly liquid-induced. Um, was there alcohol, uh, on, alcohol on board? Yes, there was. Oh, yeah, perfect. yeah. And, um, you know, we we let our hair down, enjoyed ourselves. I can remember wanting to sleep for days, you know. Yeah, so okay. you'd sleep, you'd get up in the morning, there'd be a head count, you know, we'd uh, sort of make an excuse about having a, a little briefing on this or that, that's about half an hour, and then, okay, lads, you can have the rest of the day now, go up and sort of go up and lie in the sun as we got towards the equator and the weather got nicer. And the uh, if you look back at um, conflicts like Vietnam, for argument's sake, you know, um, or Iraq and Afghanistan, um some of the lessons that perhaps hadn't been properly learned or the impacts hadn't been properly understood of people coming from the battlefield and within 48 hours being back at home and feeling lost and alienated and yeah. feeling very anxious because their mate's not with them. We had three weeks with our mates. Um, and by the time we got to Southampton, I think a, a, an awful lot of that potential psychological uh, stress, that pressure cooker, had been vented. Um, oh, and what was that like landing at Southampton? I mean, what? Okay, let me go back one. What were your family thinking whilst you're in the South Atlantic? Their their son, their brother. You know, I, I don't know what what your family was consisted of, but what what was the family like? Well, it's it, it's it's amazing. I have a um, uh, a big scrapbook of all the newspaper cuttings that my mum kept for me. She, she she bought every newspaper every morning and cut everything out and stuck it in a book. Incredible. Um, and she went grey while I was away. She used to have lovely sort of chestnut coloured hair, and it was grey by the time I got home. And of course, I was only a kid, so you know you you don't actually understand the impact of that until later in life perhaps when you know if you've been fortunate enough to have your own children you understand the um the worry that that sort of thing must have have generated for them um but uh yeah it's uh it, it must have been an extremely tough time for them and they came down to southampton to meet me and I remember my dad running along the coaches and he climbed up the steps of the coach because we knew we weren't being allowed to get off. We were going straight back up to our broth. Oh, really? So um, and uh, we we were allowed a message, uh, a telegram from the ship. And I got a telegram from the family to say, we're going to come and meet you at Southampton. And I sent a message back saying, no, don't bother. It's not worth it. Um, and I thought I think it took my dad a while to understand that, and it probably took me a while to understand why he found that difficult. Yeah. Um, because as far as he was concerned, all they wanted to do was get eyes on you, and then they know that it's over, yeah. properly over, and you're going to be all right. Whereas um, for me, um, we had a job to do, and so we all and we wanted to stay together. You know, I didn't want to leave my my mates. Hmm. Um, so we got off the ship, as you did, and we'll put our heads down and 
tromped straight past our families, to be perfectly honest, most of us, um, and got onto these coaches. And my dad came up the steps. Is there someone called Tudway on here? And somebody shouted down there. And I was sitting right down the back, obviously. Um, so I came off, got off, gave everybody a quick hug and a kiss and said hello. And then uh, I got back on the coach. We went to Eastley Airport where there was a line of Hercules waiting. And, and away we went. Um, and I then actually arrived home probably two, three days later, um, having travelled down from our broth by train. Um, I, yeah. I've got, I've got a friend who, another beef eater, who there's a famous photograph of him. He's had his teeth knocked out, a guy called Steve Froggett, who he retired. <laughs> yeah. Do you yeah. know him? I've come across Froggett, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's had his teeth, and there he is giving his, and, and I'll be honest with you, as a as a kid, you know, I'm a couple of years younger than you. Watching that on the TV, I can't I can't express how proud we were. You know, as a mm. nation, that was just phenomenal. And um, yeah, watching the Canberra, and my grandparents had been on the Canberra, but to watch that was just absolutely incredible. How long did you serve after the Falklands? I mean, everything else piled into insignificance after that, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, I, I stayed up in 4-5. I'd already been um, drafted before the conflict started, but obviously um, I wasn't going anywhere. I'd handed in my mounted gear. I went and got it back straight away before right. we uh, deployed. Um, so all the um, postings, um, or we called them drafts, um, in our in our sort of pseudo navy parlance, had been put on hold. But when I went back up after a period of summer leave, back up to the unit, everything, the machinery of normality, began to churn. And I think it was the September or October then that um, I waved goodbye to my mates in four five, and I was drafted to HMS Warrior. Oh, okay. Um, at Northwood, on the um, in Hertfordshire. Oh, all right. Uh, on the border of Hertfordshire and London. Um, and I stayed there for a couple of years on the um, security team. And it was there really that I sort of um, came across um, police officers because they used to come in and mump a cup of coffee from <laughs> us in the guardroom. <laughs> and um, I'd got married by that stage, got married when I got back from the Falklands and like a lot of blokes did, very young. Um, and you realize then, well, I'm starting a family and, and, you know, um, they need a bit of security and a bit of certainty. And also, um, whilst it was for me the best job in the world, it didn't bring home a lot of money. No. And it was still at that stage, um, the military was still almost feudal. So, if you had a, um, you know, you there was very little movement bit sideways between regiments or units. Um, it is happily quite different now. Yeah. And people's skills and um, abilities are used to the best, um, the best interest of all, as opposed to just being about cat badge rivalry. Um, and because my education, unfortunately, that we talked at the beginning about me leaving school with my hat full of O-levels. When I say hat, it was a tiny little cap and I couldn't <laughs> squeeze many in. And so my prospects for promotion within the service were lamentably poor at that stage. Um, I 
done very well when um, I went through basic training. I was actually a King's Badgeman and had been sort of identified earlier on to, as having, uh, during the commando phase, as having sort of leadership potential longer term. Uh, and the Corps um, were true to their word and said, look, you know, um, you could well be the sort of person that we would want to take on as a commissioned officer. However, when they read to the bit that talked about my education, it all went quiet. Um, <laughs> and they did their best. They sent me away on an education because I went down to um, Portsmouth for uh, about 10 or 12 weeks to try and retake some exams. But um, maths has never been my strong point and never will be. Um, and I simply couldn't pass it, even even with sort of hot housing training. Um, and so I decided that um, staying long term probably wasn't the best for me. So I yeah I ended up looking to the police. Um, and where did you go to when you when you joined the police? I mean, you, you, going to Hendon must have been an absolute breeze because you knew how to keep your kit clean and um, <laughs> uh, and. You you, mar- you march differently in the in the Royal Marines. Uh, Dave Wilson was my um, drill instructor or uh, drill leader at, at Ashford, and uh, he got told off because he marched in a particular way. So we didn't have to march on board, sir. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we never we, we really didn't have a we had a fairly low threshold boredom threshold for <laughs> ceremonial stuff in the in the Royal Marines. But when I went to Hendon, I mean, it's it's funny now looking back. But um, I thought I was being double clever. I thought, nah, you're not going to catch me out. All this business have come to Hendon on a Sunday night, you know. I'll go with an empty suitcase. I'll just take a couple of pairs of pants and a couple of pairs of socks and one more shirt so I can rinse them every night and dry them overnight because they're going to have me running up and down a railway embankment with my suitcase on my head. So I arrived all smug with all these other recruits <laughs> looking, at, looking at their bulging bags and suitcases thinking, yeah, you're going to be regretting that in a minute, mate, when it's on your head and you're running up and down. And they were all saying to me, you know, well, good evening, sir. And can we get you a cup of coffee? And I'm thinking, hang on, in a minute, someone's wearing a balaclava is going to jump out of that cupboard and start bashing us. <laughs> and, you know, nobody ever did. So that first week at Hendon was fairly austere for me because I was hand washing everything <laughs> at night, putting on the radiator. Uh, <laughs> Incredible! Oh dear, a completely different, um, completely different setup. Yeah, completely different. And where did you get posted to after your basic training? Uh, I went to Hammersmith, um, and um, yeah, Hammersmith uh, was conjoined with Shepherd's Bush and Fulham, forming F district of as was of the Met. Um, but I was posted at Hammersmith. Um, and I did my street duties course, um, which was your sort of post um, the college, post the learning phase, your actual practical hands-on apprenticeship, if you like, on the street. Um, and then I went on to D-Relief at Hammersmith, um, where I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I had a great time. Yeah. But I had a particular um, leaning if you like, towards crime. And I only actually wore a uniform for 18 months. I didn't make it to the end of my probation in uniform. And one of the things that um, I was um, very satisfied about when I came to the end of my service, although if, I, if I'm if i really honest and look at it in a sort of global 
perspective probably wasn't as good was that I remained a detective then for the whole of my service. Mm. I never, never went back into a uniform after uh, 1987. Um, not necessarily a strength, but then to do all the things that I was privileged enough um, fortunate enough to be able to do while I was in the police service, I couldn't possibly have fitted that in without having another lifetime alongside it. If I wanted to do, uh, you know, to to work in uniform as well, so um, yeah, absolutely. And where you did know. you serve as a detective? Um, I went on to a crime squad at, uh, at Hammersmith, and so worked all over West London. And we had a focus on drugs uh, mainly at that time um, before. Um, all of the sort of politics about numbers started coming into mm. policing and somebody clever realised that um, crime statistics matter to politicians and that um, if somebody had some drugs in their pockets, it wasn't an offence until you put your hand on their shoulder and arrested them. And then it became a statistic. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're not to, not to be bothering yourself with drugs. Um, from there, I, I, was, uh, I went on my DC's course um, up to Hendon again and I got posted out to Battersea uh, in South London on W District um, a real good hard uh, ground um, and I worked in the main office there and then on the robbery squad at Battersea um, fantastic time there really thoroughly enjoyed it um, was that all and, robberies or was that you know street robberies or you know they've had the, the gold on um this past yes. few, few weeks. I mean, was it every type of robbery or just? No, no. We 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 took anything that the flying squad didn't take. Right. So they dealt with cash in transit and banks, um, and there was plenty of that at that stage. Yeah. And we dealt with uh, other types of commercial premises or shops, and down to street robberies and muggings. And we had Clapham Junction, um, massive rail terminus in South London. And um, a couple of very, very big, very tough council estates on the on the ground as well. Um, and so there was no shortage of customer base for us. No. <laughs> it, it's, but it's brilliant, isn't it? People pay money to do the sorts of things that we did. I mean, that, that, and that's the truth. You only have to look at popular television and books. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really good. When you when when you got promoted, what was the inspiration to get promoted the fir the first time? <laughs> right. Well, it's it's an, that's a really interesting one. Um, I was at Battersea, um, and I had a particular uh, DI at the time. Uh, I'll shave his blushes by not mentioning his name, but he knows who he is. Um, and uh, he said to me, "I've been watching you, son," in his South London accent. I said, "Oh, that's that's very nice, Governor. Thank you." And he said, uh, "I won't use the language he used because it was um, it was South London language." Agriculture. But I'll interpret I'll interpret it for you into uh, into radio English. He said, uh, "You're no fool, are you?" And I said, "Well, I like to think I'm not." <laughs> and he said, "So you'll have a report on my desk by tomorrow telling me that uh, you want to take the exam." And I said, "Oh, right. Will I?" And I had never, honestly, genuinely, never thought about taking the exam until that point so I, I went away he just winked at me and said right go on get out of here in agricultural language um and so I went away and I had a little think about it and I thought oh right okay he's probably got a point 
so next day I went in and said, uh, I've been thinking about what you said, Governor, and here you go, I'd like to take the sergeant's exam. He said, yeah, great, okay, well done. Um, I was, uh, I worked hard um, and was fortunate, I passed it, um, just at the point where there was a moratorium in the Met on promotion while they were trying to decide what they did about all sorts of issues. Um, but eventually I went up to Hendon, did a um, a basic sergeant's course, which um, involved a couple of uh, detectives being attached to a, uh, a much bigger group of uniformed officers who are all aspiring sergeants. And that was great fun because that was the first time I'd really sort of worked back alongside people um, doing other types of work that than the work that detectives did uh, and made some friends there who are still mates today. You know, who'd yep. have thought that, eh? Um, and then I came back, did a, a, a detective sergeant's course, the intermediate CID course, um, and I was posted to Brixton, to the main office there, um, which was, of all of the postings I did out on, uh, as we used to call it, out on district or division in those days, that was far and away the best. Brixton was fantastic. Yeah, it was a bit true. like Fort Apache, the Bronx. Yeah. Um, you know, everything was going on outside the gates and we all stood shoulder to shoulder alongside one another and we just got on with it. We had the we had some serious um, public disorder while I was there and I remember sleeping in the office, you know, we had sleeping bags under our desks because some nights you couldn't get out of the station to go home. It wasn't safe. You get I used to ride a motorbike, you'd get dragged off your bike. So um we kept in the office or across the road in the pub. There was a pub there and the landlady, Mary, used to, used to keep on the benches in there. <laughs> they had a great can canteen at Brixton as well, if I remember rightly. It was uh... Uh, The canteen there was wonderful. And, um, you know, much is made of um, in society of the divisions by class and by race and all those things. And, and all I'll say on what is a, a, an enormous subject um, that I'm in no way qualified to talk on other than anecdotally is that we loved our canteen staff. Yeah. Those ladies who worked in there, they were all either Jamaican, uh, Ghanaian. They were all ladies of color. Yeah. Um, they were fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. Um, and each station used to take a pride in how they looked after their canteen staff. Yeah. So we'd send a car out in the morning to pick them up. You know, you didn't let your canteen lady have to walk to work, did you? At half past five in the morning? No, you went out and picked them up, you know, and somebody would go out and help them carry their – if they were getting some um, – you know, the girls used to go out and get yams and things like that from Brixton Market, and so we'd have food that you would never eat at home. Oh, no. You know, so somebody would go out with them and carry the shopping bags and that sort of thing, you know, not all the time, not every time, but as often as, um, as was possible. And um, – <laughs> those ladies were fantastic yeah yeah and the they also they, they also wielded a a, a savage uh, ladle as well you know if they thought you were taking the mick or nicking chips over the top of the counter i've got scars on the back of my hands now <laughs> that uh, <laughs> are down to the canteen ladies and their eagle-like accuracy with their ladle on the back of your hand when you're trying to nick a chip <laughs> it, it was it was a, i don't even know if they've got a canteen there now but it was an absolutely superb the food, goat curry, and there was all sorts. It was absolutely brilliant. Mm, it was. It was. And we loved them and they loved us. 
when you bounce through to the chief superintendent rank, which is, you know, a lot of people don't get anywhere near that. Did you, did young Marine Tudway think that he was ever going to get to that? Nope. <laughs> no. Um, and I think the truth is that the, the issue with police promotion is unlike um, many other sort of disciplines, I guess, in that um, once the ball starts rolling or the rock starts rolling down the hill, you you may as well just keep going. And I became a sergeant and um, and I, I very quickly thought, hang on a minute, you know, I, I, I respected everybody I worked with and worked for, but sometimes I saw things and I thought, I could do that better than you. Mm. So I thought, right, well, I'll, I'll have a go at the next one then and I'll have a go at the next one. And almost by accident, you end up then where you end up. And for me, I was very, I was blessed. I ended up as a, as a detective chief superintendent, but the, the sort of route that I took to get that and the opportunities that the, um, that public service sort of provided for me was second to none. You know, I did 15 years, broadly speaking, 15 years out on a division and then just the the world changed beyond all recognition after 9-11. And I got, um, was very fortunate as a, as a newly promoted DI to get called up to the yard. And I went up and worked um, in a department called SO10. Yeah. The covert operations group. Excellent. Um, And I worked up there for uh, um, several years and then, um, got promoted again and ended up working in specialist intelligence, working between the agencies and the police, that very grey area where some of the intelligence gathering that uh, is done by our uh, intelligence and security partners in at home and abroad has a massive impact on uh, serious and organised crime. Yeah. And, you know, there's that strange dance that takes place where – evidence that uh, or information that can never be used as evidence can help lead you to the place where an evidential trail can begin and um, it writes some really serious wrongs Um, and I also was very fortunate as a a, that young DI and DCI to um, become uh, involved in the covert side of kidnap inquiries and I worked worked as a green commander first on the intelligence feeds and then as a red commander as a hostage no uh, kidnap hostage negotiator um and at that time in london we were running about three or four live kidnaps a week none of uh, which are reported busy. are they they don't you know these things don't get reported they don't happen as far as anyone else is concerned but they're there and they're going on yeah, I mean they are the they are the um, one of the one of the most um, serious uh, investigations you can ever work on because a kidnap is always a murder that hasn't quite happened, happened yet. yet. Yeah, but it's not far off, um, and some are for money, some are for revenge. Um, most most of them though are about hard cash, um, yeah. and certainly were in those days. And some of the things, some of the operations that we did were really, really cutting edge. 
Um, and there was some great courage um, shown by many, many of my colleagues whilst we were doing all of those jobs and getting people home safely. Yeah. You know, some of them would run for days. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. And not all were in the UK, you know, some were abroad. Um, I was very, very fortunate. I um, had the honour, if it's if you can say that, of um, uh, being out in Baghdad and bringing Norman Kember home, the first um, the first live British kidnap victim from uh, Baghdad. What was that like? Two, uh, that was incredible. Um, we got I got bounced out there very quickly. Um, because we suspected that um, there was going to be a bit of a breakthrough. Um, uh, we worked very closely with the special forces who were operating on the ground in Baghdad at that stage. Um, and I'm sure you won't mind me saying so. Billy, who uh, a lot of people watch on the telly these days. <laughs> uh, I, I think Billy's last job um, before he uh, finished at Hereford was that uh, hostage rescue for Norman Kemba because we flew out of the um, flew out of the red zone uh, together by helicopter and then we flew back to the UK together um, courtesy of British Airways um, a couple of days later. Um, so some of those the opportunities as a police officer to be involved in some of those operations at that sort of level are incredible. Um, I also I went out a year earlier than that. I was in Afghanistan for a, a not so successful um, operation, which unfortunately ended up in uh, me doing a body recovery um, from Kabul. Um, and yeah, I literally travelled travelled the world, and most recently um, it would have been about um 2011 oh 2013 2012 2013 um i was uh, deployed out into the southern end of uh, turkey right near the border of uh, syria um whilst desperate attempts were made to um, to rescue some of the hostages who were um murdered by um the ISIS jihadis, the Beatles yeah. group. Um, and interestingly now, you know, looking after the dreadful earthquake that's hit that area, I look at the, the, the street where the hotel was, where I was staying for a couple of weeks, just flat, yeah. completely flattened by a natural disaster yeah. on that occasion, you know. So um, being in the, being in the Met, being in the, um, in the uh, police service in general, is a huge privilege for anybody who is fortunate enough to be able to carry a warrant card. Um, but in my case, you know, I was extremely fortunate to have so many different opportunities to do different things. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I do. I, I, I still love the police. That's why we do what we do with our, you know, recruitment and, and with this podcast. But, you, I mean, you've seen Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey. It's brilliant. But I've got to ask you about your Guinness Book of Records uh, <laughs> entry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was great fun. I've got the little certificate up on the wall there. Um, I have to say, uh, I consider my, my role in the downfall of that record as being a fairly walk-on bit part. Some, some colleagues of mine 
close friends of mine. Um, well, we were at Battersea together on the on the robbery squad. Um, had come up with an idea of doing a, a drive and raising money for charity for the Royal Marsden for the Children's Cancer Unit there um, to try and help them fund uh, a new ward. And so they collectively came up with this idea of driving through all 43 counties of the United Kingdom, starting out in the Shetlands, then by ferry to the Orkney, then by ferry to the mainland, and then across to the Isle of Man and to Northern Ireland, um, which in itself was a bit of a logistical um, yeah. feat um, in 1993. Um, we, as a, as a team, I use the royal we. I have to say, um, to my eternal shame, I had no part in the organising, otherwise we probably got lost within five <laughs> minutes. Um, the, the team managed to uh, talk Ford into giving us two of their latest models, um, the new Mondeo was just being released. So we had two brand new Mondeos and we had data back cameras fitted on the dashboards of these so we could take time stamped evidential photographs of every county border we crossed. And um, we did it nonstop, apart from the opportunity to get a little bit of kip on the back seat when it wasn't your turn to drive or map read um, or, you know, a little bit of kip on a ferry as you're going across. But we did it in uh, what's this? 96 hours and nine minutes between the 17th and the 21st of September 1993. And the the, the thing that I am proud of um, was the fact that we raised a significant sum, several hundred thousand pounds worth for uh, the Royal Mars. And I can't remember the exact figure now, I'm afraid, um, through the mists of time. But that money went to equip a children's cancer ward. And I think it's things like that, that, um, you know, when you see some of the adverse press coverage um, that is directed at policing, some of it entirely justified when you think about some of the awful things that have gone on. But this is the soft side. This is the, um, the compassionate side of policing. And I don't think that there is anybody who starts out their service in policing or perhaps with one or two very, very notable exceptions, but they are in a micro minority. There isn't a single person who takes that oath to become a police officer who isn't doing it in order to protect those who can't protect themselves from the people who would do them harm, who would take their stuff. You know, it's... um, I absolutely agree. Quite humbling. I absolutely agree. I I get really sad. I I know why the press do it. I know why they do it because, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we, the police service, were trying to lock them up for a number of things that they did or didn't do. Um, And some of this is retribution, I I would respectfully suggest. But um, I think think you're right there. And I I suppose that therein, actually, the biggest lesson for everybody – isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in every barrel of apples, there's the opportunity for one to go rotten. Yeah, there is, absolutely. And it doesn't matter which what, what label it has on the outside of your barrel, whether it's police, journalist, yep. doctor, nurse, politician. Yeah. You know, um, we talked earlier about how young men um, get themselves into trouble with uh, modern technology like WhatsApp. Woohoo! Yeah, nothing like what's going on up at the big house at the moment, is it? Eh? No, you that's, know, with, and you're um, absolutely right. I mean, they're, they're just, but the, this will pale into 
what's happening with the, those particular politicians will pale into insignificant when a police officer, one young police officer does something stupid. I'm not talking about criminally stupid, as we've seen this week with people being sentenced to more time, but they'll do one thing and they'll be hay made by the, by the media because they want to want to get their claws into them. Yeah, and I suppose the sad side of that is that uh, the thing that I always reflect on is you might get that one, normally it's a young in-service officer who does something ill-advised or downright stupid. Yeah. Um, but for everyone who has that experience, there will be 10 or 20 or possibly even more, actually, others who will have had a complaint made against them, which takes years to resolve, yeah. which puts their entire life and their careers on hold. Yeah. And actually, when the investigation is done, they hadn't been at fault. Nobody ever reports that. No. No, because yeah, it's it's not news, is it? You know, no. policeman pat small child on the head and child smiles. You know, that's never going to make the uh, the headlines, is it? No. Um, no and that right. is life, I guess. That's that's human nature. But um, sometimes you do feel that the um, the pendulum is swung far too far in one direction and needs to be recentered. But do you think? I mean, we, we're going to go on to what you've done in your in your later life shortly, but. In my adult life, in your adult, in your grown-up life, <laughs> but but do you not think? I think that sometimes the police are their own worst enemies because they don't put the good news out. They don't work with. You look at what happened in Lancashire. Work with the media when you need the media because actually they're another part of an investigation. They're an investigative arm that have got no rules around Ripper or any any other part of it. And I think that sometimes they don't put out the right stories at the right times. I, th I just don't think the police help themselves. Well, I think, again, you know, you and I both had experience as senior investigators and the pressures that there are on you. And I suppose the my reflection on that is that um, you can ask your press officers to give a good news story out as often as you like until you're blue in the face. But if nobody on the other side says, yeah, I'll, we'll run with that, police officer pats child on head and child smiles yeah. story you know it'll never appear anyway you're just uh, you're just dropping a a coin into the ocean um and also i think that both the police service and the journalistic profession need to collectively draw a breath and go to uh, organizational relate to discuss how this marriage can uh, can come back on track again because journalists need the police yeah. and the police need the journalists and um you know, a tiny, minuscule minority of journalists are bad yeah, in are. the same way that yeah. a tiny, minuscule minority of police officers are bad. Yeah. And when the good on both sides work together cooperatively, it squeezes out the opportunities for the bad on both sides to operate with impunity. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, a climate of fear has grown up around it. And uh, many senior officers nowadays are frightened to talk to the press. Yeah, I'm frightened of what other people might think, frightened of what the press might do with it. Um, but actually, you know, the older heads amongst the journalists will probably have a very similar view on it, I think, oh, to me. I, yeah, absolutely. I know we would we would use the press in order to get part of our stories into the public domain so that the public would come forward and provide us with the information that we want. 
that we needed in order to progress an investigation, and that's what's lost. And I just I don't get it. But we could we could go on about that for hours. Um, <laughs> right, Adrian, the grown up Adrian, you've re- <laughs> you've retired in two thousand and fourteen. I did, yes. So nine years, mate. I mean, that I know it's a long time, isn't it? Goes quickly, doesn't it? As well, it's quite scary. Once you do retire, you wait nine years. It's like, oh, it's the only job in the world where someone says to you, "How long have you got left?" I mean, not to, not to live, but until you retire. And then when you retire, time just runs away with itself. But what does the grown-up Adrian do now? Oh, again, I've been really, really fortunate. Um, when I left the police, I went straight um, <laughs> overnight because I'm a bit stupid like that. Uh, I retired on a Tuesday because that was the day of the month to retire. Uh, on the Wednesday morning, I started with Crime Stoppers, the uh, the crime charity. Did you really working for them? Yeah, I worked for them um, from 2014 until 2017. And, and they're they were, really good. They are. They are. I mean, uh, they are a fantastic organisation. The work that they seek to do in communities is just brilliant. And for anybody who doesn't understand it, just have a look. Search on your. Um, Search on your pocket doodah for uh, Crime Stoppers UK. And it's uh, it's a charity that takes information completely anonymously. Um, and so people who are close to something bad that's happening but couldn't dare go to the police can tell Crime Stoppers about it. And Crime Stoppers passes that information anonymously to the uh, police force that are dealing with it. And there is also then the added bonus that... Um, if you want to want to, you can be considered for a, a cash reward for providing the information. And it some of the um, some of the things that I saw solved as a consequence of information that came t- to Crime Stoppers um, was absolutely incredible during my three years that I was privileged to work for them. Uh, I can't speak highly enough of them. So uh, as I say. And if you're not familiar with Crime Stoppers, have a search in your pocket thingy, Bob, and uh, for Crime Stoppers and have a look at what they do. And suffice to say, the police do work on the information that's provided and they will go through every single piece of information to see whether it's a valid um, referral to make sure that there's nothing spurious about it or it's a... But the, it's not malicious. Not yeah. malicious, but the work that you – you know, as a DCI, I'd, I'd get these crime stoppers and say, well, why haven't we gone – because nine times out of ten, it would, it would tie up with other intelligence that was being provided by someone else. And all of a sudden, you've got a bigger part of the jigsaw and it could be acted upon. Mm. Yeah, that's brilliant. So you, you finished there. What happens I, next? I went I went from, I went from uh, crime stoppers um, and I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to work with the – Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. Wow. Um, and that, again, is an organisation not many people know about. It's called PHSO. Uh, it does truly incredible work. Um, they are an organisation that takes complaints against primarily the health service, but also all sorts of other government departments where people have been wronged. So, you know, like the Driver and Vehicle Licensing Agency or some of those other sort of organisations that are government organisations. And um, PHSO's investigators will investigate those complaints. So at the very top end of the scale, if you've had a a child who's died in hospital because of medical negligence, 
then PHSO will investigate that. And uh, Rob Berens, who is the um, current ombudsman and who I was fortunate enough to work for for a short time uh, before I finished there, um, has just very recently, just this last week, um, gone out in the press and talked about a hospital trust where he had doctors coming to him saying, please don't give up. Don't allow your people to give up. We can't speak out because the trust are telling us not to, but there are bad things going on here and you need to keep digging. And this is about protecting everybody. It's mm. a little bit like being, it's a bit like beyond the police, in the police, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's uh, it's protecting the people in society who are least able to stand up for themselves and it gives them a voice, it gives them an opportunity for their complaints to be resolved. Um, and again, I can't speak highly enough of it. So anybody who's interested in that, Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. Ombudsmen are incredibly powerful people. They are indeed. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and since then, um, I've been working with um, a colleague on um, uh, a, a company, and I'm still going, um, with a, a device called the Safe Booth, which is uh, really interesting. It's um, a patented design, it is, but it's a modular holding cell and it's licensed in the UK to hold a person for up to six hours inside a police station or inside a prison um, or somewhere else that's suitable. And the idea of it is that it's totally ligature free. So it's built from steel panels. Um, a couple of us build them in about two and a half hours from scratch. So in some of the older Victorian police stations where there are rooms that you can't put a person in because there are pipe work in the roof or that sort of thing that you yeah. it would be far too expensive to move that they could harm themselves with, you could probably erect one of these safe booths inside that and that provides a safe space. It's got a complete um, glass front to it through the door so you can see the person inside most importantly they can see you for anybody who's anxious distressed claustrophobic this is a far far better more sensible option than a cell and we are just on the cusp uh, working with some colleagues in thames valley police on um, using these uh, safe booths as smart booths smart health booths with a video pack on the outside of the door to enable uh, remote healthcare providers to be able to uh, triage a person who comes into custody so they can, um, we are uh, in the early stages of partnering with um, uh, an, an IT company who have software that will run over our equipment that will tell you respiration rate, blood pressure, pulse rate, they will tell, um, they'll uh, give you an, an indication on a scale as to how anxious a person is, whether they're particularly distressed, can help you de detect all sorts of um, health problems and psychological problems at that very, very early stage when that person first comes into a police station, um, as well as a host of other uses after that point because if you're a superintendent uh, at headquarters and you have to give a, an authority for a person to remain in custody at two o'clock in the morning and you've got to tip out of bed and drive all the way there in order to do it, 
get the custody staff to put this person in the in the safe booth and from your kitchen breakfast bar with a cup of strong coffee you can have a call like you and i are having where you can see one another so and, they, and they give your authorities so they don't have to do it in person now because it used to be it had to be an in-person originally it had to be in person yeah. but um, a lot of things changed with the pandemic for for worse one of the good things i think was the ability to relax um the requirements for some of these uh, procedures to be done virtually because of course if your solicitor wanted to be involved in that it's a team's call yeah to simply split the screen and add a solicitor in if language english isn't your first language you split the screen again and add an interpreter in it can be an interpreter from anywhere in the world so how did so you if come you're up talking with this about idea? language um it, it wasn't my idea um it came up, um, somebody travelled to the States some years ago now and saw temporary holding facilities and came back with that as an idea and it developed and it developed and it developed. And um, now we are, um, as I say, we're a very small company um, and we are just on the cusp of this really exciting uh, project with Thames Valley Police to use these to help um not just it's not just about reducing costs it's about improving service mm. so if you are in a police station somewhere let's say for argument's sake in rural wales and you come into custody but you've got a rare or unusual condition a, a, a nurse or a, a healthcare practitioner who's actually working at that rural station may never have seen anything like that before but if you are doing a virtual consultation then there is the opportunity to then dial in a doctor as well, a specialist. So that nurse or practitioner might say, I, I recognise something that you as the person sitting on the other side of the camera may not even be aware of yourself um, and bring in a specialist practitioner. And it's about um, saving lives, saving risk um, and speeding up processes as mm. well. If you have to wait for somebody to travel 40 miles when you could have had a call like this face to face to do the same business with all of your legal protections in place, you're going to be out of uh, that police station one way or another in significantly less time. Yeah. So it's it's about um, it's about improving processes and speeding things up, and also about making the best use of limited resources because let's face it, an awful lot of the police estate in the UK and abroad is old. Yeah, and so those buildings weren't weren't designed with 21st century safety in mind. So they have ligature points and you know all that sort of thing. And it's it's not just the police. You think about um, prisons. Yeah, if you could have a couple of these smart booths on every wing of a prison, and then when prisoner A says to the prison officer, "I really don't feel well. I need to go and see a doctor," and they're thinking, "Hmm, how do we risk assess this?" taking this person right the way across the estate when that prison officer can say okay i'll be back to you you go and have a sit down i'll come back to you in 20 minutes when the um, smart booth is is free we'll put you in and they have a triage call to the nurse on duty in the prison's healthcare unit who's able to say actually there's nothing wrong with this person give them a couple of aspirin they're trying it on on the other hand who'll be looking at the biometrics coming up saying blood pressure is really high, yep. pulse rate is really high, they're clearly very distressed, signs of agitation, they must be in pain. Actually, don't bother bringing them all the way to the healthcare centre. Call an ambulance now. 
this person needs immediate acute health care. So the ability to um, speed up those processes, save all of the risk to prison officers as they are moving people around an estate and to the people themselves whose liberty has been uh, deprived. You know, this is a, a really uh, interesting, I think, development. And and then so you use, extrapolate it one step further. OK, the boxes that we are producing at the moment in the main only have a door handle on the outside. <laughs> but we've produced um, models with a door handle both sides for use for police witnesses, for argument's sake, to give evidence remotely to a magistrate's court. You think nowadays all the people who are disenfranchised from um, accessing the health service because when they go to hospital for their follow ups, they have to go to a general hospital, which might be miles away. And of course, there's only so many hours in the day for people to come into the hospital. If Boots the chemist, for argument's sake, or Sainsbury's said, yeah, we'll have a couple of these health booths in our store in a small, a small area on one side. And you've got a follow up for your general hospital, but it's 40 miles away. You go to your local Boots or your, and I, you know, we've not spoken to Boots, so I apologise to Boots for uh, for the unwanted plug. But you go there or to your local supermarket, you can sit in the booth and then the hospital, you can speak to your hospital consultant who, whilst you're sitting there, has got a little chart next to him saying, yeah, blood pressure's good, pulse rate's good, breathing rate's good. You know, they don't look too anxious, actually, you know, we all know if, if you have to have a, a procedure at a hospital, you normally have two or three assessments before you have the procedure and then normally a couple afterwards. Yeah. Well, you don't need to go normally to hospital face to face to have all of those um, all of those uh, appointments. You think how much it could speed things up and how much better it'd be for um, older people for argument, brilliant. argument's sake, you know, who don't have access to the internet. So I am hoping that um, – at but, some point, this will really take off. But if you had this in the foyer of a doctor's surgery, it could be the precursor to them walking in and actually seeing the quag. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we also, um, <laughs> the, all of the um, surfaces of this booth are coated with uh, an antimicrobial paint. It's the same stuff that they use in uh, metal equipment in operating theatres. So right. it has copper sulfate actually in the mix of the paint. So if you've got COVID or another virus, that virus dies on contact with the painted surfaces. Wow. So you don't you don't have to decontaminate them in the way that, you know, in when COVID was at its height, one COVID positive prisoner could close a custody suite oh, yeah. for 72 hours. You know, this is open the door, give the walls a wipe down with anti-back and it's good to go again. I mean, there are so many positives. For yeah, these. absolutely. I mean, you, you just – and it could be a focal point for so many – you know, you could have one of these at a premiership football club. You know, it's just somewhere – if someone can walk in and get a health – a screening check done within this smart booth, then it just makes life a lot easier for so many people. It does. It does. It does. And, you you know, again, you think about – you talk about football, the cost to the police and to um, football clubs of policing football matches oh, – yeah because officers have to be abstracted and taken away to somewhere else to deal with a with a prisoner, who, a person who's been detained during the match. All you do is you take them downstairs, put them into one of these smart booths, read them their rights, serve them a banning order, and then put them on a bus 
take them, you know, however far away. If they're not to come within five miles of the football ground, you put them on a bus, bus them out five miles, and uh, away they go. Jobs You've not good. lost that officer. Yeah, precisely. You know, it's um, so many of the minor disorder uh, offences that are committed at um, sporting and and music venues. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Festivals. People... People who are so drunk they can't look after themselves. Well, they're in there. They're on video all the time. Yeah, because they shouldn't be in the care, custody or control of a St John's ambulance person because they're busy enough as it is. The police haven't, you know, in real terms, they can't put them in a cell. So to have them in a holding area that can be fully monitored and and if their vitals are, you know, be able to take their vitals, it would just save so much time. It would. And when you're finished with it, you just drop it and put it back on the wagon takes less time to take it apart than it does to build it and of course if you put it in room a this week and decide next week you wanted it in room b we come back dismantle it carry it up the corridor and build it in in room b wow there's no there's no cell or or tape recorded interview room or video recorded interview facility anywhere in the world that can say that no no, I, I'm going to put all your links in the body of the uh, the text connected to this podcast, and we'll share this with within our network and you know the people that we we regularly go to and and more. But uh, oh, it, thank you very much. No, you're welcome, Adrian. I mean, I've asked this question before, but if are your family, your folks still around? Uh, yeah, I am. Well, the biggest. Um, to my mind, the biggest privilege in life is the position that I'm in at the moment. Uh, my wife and I moved five years ago to the flat we live now. We downsized savagely from a great big house um, to a to a flat because I could be on the doorstep for my parents, and right. I'd still bless them. I've still got mum and dad. Mum's 86, and dad's 85. Um, dad's got vascular dementia, right. and is sort of part way through that journey. So we're here because I can visit them every day. I do my mum's shopping. Um, we take them to all their medical appointments, you know, um, and we just on hand, I'm there to be able to <laughs> make up for uh, causing my mum all those years of uh, expense with hair dye. After that's the what I was going to say. And they must be so proud, mate. You know, the, the, the lad that legged it off to join the Royal Marines, finishes as a chief superintendent and now a full-on entrepreneur, they must be absolutely wrapped. And um, I, I feel your pain with the dementia journey, mate, because I've got it with my mother-in-law, who's also 85. So it's um, it, is, it is brutal. But before we conclude this interview, is there anything you'd like to add, alter or correct in relation <laughs> to this journey? Well, I'll be getting bail, Governor. Well, do you know, I use that because... Because I can, and it's, it, but but you you've smiled, and everybody else who I do it to smiles because when back in those halcyon days when we took those statements, we gave people that opportunity, and I'm giving you that opportunity now. Uh, there's um, only to say thank you very much for the opportunity to chat. Um, I hope that this interests somebody out there. Oh, it will. <laughs> At least one person, it one will. person who listens to it, and. Um, the truth of the matter is that uh, I am, I have been very, very fortunate in life. And um, beyond the lesson about the amusing worm in the mud and always looking on the bright side, uh, it's never been truer, has it, that a smile will take you right round the globe. 
but no. a frown gets you nowhere, no does it? Um, You're absolutely right. I've been I've been blessed to have a, a healthy and happy life, and um, there you go. Well, thank you so much. You've made me laugh and cry in e equal measure, mate. If I'm perfectly honest with you, but um, thank you so much for your time today, and it's been a real privilege. And I, you know, and I mean that to talk to you. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Likewise, yeah. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, God bless, mate.